Hello, and welcome to Shed. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Julie Vanderhoop. In this episode, Julie talks about her Native American heritage and how she fosters community one pizza at a time. Welcome to Shed, Julie. Good morning, Eric. I was going to try to introduce you and run down your bio, but it would probably be easier to say what you have not done and have not been involved in in many ways. But briefly, you are a member of the Wampanoag tribe. Mm-hmm. You are a select person for the board of Aquina. Mm-hmm. You are a baker, mm-hmm. business owner, mother, sister, mm-hmm. um, lifetime resident of Martha's Vineyard. Yes. Hmm. It's a lot of hats. Absolutely. What's your most important or favorite hat that you wear? Well, I can't deny that being, you know, from the family aspect and being with my family, Mm -hmm. being with my community Mm -hmm. is just number one for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's brought me everything, health, wellness, knowledge, you name it. Um, That's where it all, it, it all started and it also all came back to me Hmm. uh, about 20 years ago when I moved back to the island. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had been out in in the, you know, wherever in the nation. Mm -hmm. And moving back here, I feel, was more of a calling Mm -hmm. than I even understood at the time. At the time. So, yeah. So if we can back up a little bit, you come from a large family grew up in Aquina, f- youngest of six kids? There were seven originally. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, my family, we lost one of my brothers by the age of three. He passed because of meningitis. Mm. At the time, they didn't know what meningitis was, mm-hmm. and certainly not at this hospital, which was no bigger than the Chilmark School. When are we talking uh, about, Julie? This is um, the early 60s. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was the youngest of then six brothers. Mm-hmm. No sisters. Uh, no sisters. What was that like growing up the only and youngest uh, <laughs> daughter? It was pretty wild. I mean, y- at the time, Aquina was then called Gayhead, mm-hmm. um, and the Native people were known for being strong. Hmm. So that's what I knew. Gayheaders, they called us, and they had resilience. Hmm. So my brothers, I call them the pack of heroes, um, and they would show up when... There were a couple of callings for them, uh, you know, any type of emergency mm-hmm. um, and food. <laughs> so, <laughs> what do you mean by uh, and food? Food for you? <laughs> well, we gather for many different things. So, mm-hmm. potlucks are huge, um, but uh, you know, my brothers could be anywhere, and they would hear about an emergency or whatever, mm-hmm. and they would come in, and they're pretty. Brutal, but they know what to do. Um, understanding where you come from mm-hmm. when you're living way out and the hospital is 20 miles away, mm-hmm. you become dependent on your community. Mm-hmm. And to it was kind of them proving themselves. 
hmm. about who they were in the community. Julie, you're an advocate for your community, a spokesperson for the island. I know you feel passionately about the causes that are important to you. I used to see you uh, at Beetlebunk Corner at our kneeling vigils when we were kneeling uh, for victims of police violence. And I had wondered at times how it felt to see the world really start to reconcile with the violence perpetuated against black people by police, you know, the systemic violence that, that was really aimed and designed to oppress black people in this country. That, that same system has been at work on indigenous people in this country, too, in many of the same ways, but often in some subtly different ways. And I wondered if it is difficult at times to, to have seen a country and a world really rise up against this and not see the same attention paid to uh, missing indigenous women, violence, police violence, systemic violence against Native Americans. Yeah, absolutely. It was really hard for me to, once again, try to find a place. Hmm. How do I find my place for my people enjoying in this with the voice uh, and find the voice of understanding? Hmm. Uh, I needed to and wanted to work with these people that have, you know, justice has not been on our side. Mm -hmm. So I needed to find, once again, the place for my story, which we're still hailing from here. And I, it's, a, it's just a constant that we have to put ourselves out there and find our advocates. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's getting better. Mm -hmm. Somehow I can see things start to to turn, but it's a um, now it's about finding the voices of the generations, not just my children, but my nieces and nephews, uh, to try to find their places, my brothers and to try and find their place at the table. Mm -hmm. And with a lot of them, they are not used to coming out and speaking with which community, but something that I was actually taught by my son hmm. was um, – that he chooses to stand with whatever minority he finds that day. Hmm. So that was such an interesting statement. Where did that come from, do you think? <laughs> he was writing his um, essay to go and enter Dartmouth College. And he left his computer open, and I read that. Hmm. And I was just like... This is amazing. Mm -hmm. But he said that because of the opportunity given and understood by what we had created in our backyard, in the meeting of several different people, mm -hmm. 
that he felt that he could talk with so many different groups comfortably from wherever they were. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, oh, well, this is hopeful. And we just need to keep moving in that direction. Mm. You know? Um, and I think that all of these oppressed groups are going to meet up at one point or another and, and just help each other and represent. And I felt like that was happening with Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. In that summer. I really felt yeah. like it was speaking for the voice of all oppressed people, you know, based on race, sexual orientation, gender yeah. identity, all of it. Yeah. And um, where do you think we are two years after? You know, so we had this awakening and we, we talk about stages of change a little bit where, you know, we were all became aware at a deeper level of what was going on with systemic violence toward uh, black people specifically. Two years later, where do you think we are? I think it's really interesting to see some of the people that haven't chosen to educate themselves on certain issues mm -hmm. and they're still kind of in their own world on all of the issues that were brought up mm -hmm. and they're still looking for someone else to give them the I, I don't know what they're looking for. They're, they're they're looking for someone else to explain it to them. Well, what people are you talking about? Well, I've worked with a few people that come into question, well, you know, what does it mean black lives matter? Yeah. All lives matter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people who have not been oppressed do not understand oppression. <laughs> hmm. Not the same way we do. No, they don't. People no. that have not been poor do not understand what it's like to be poor. You're right. You know, you don't understand until you're standing in someone else's shoes. Mm -hmm. And you'd be lucky if they have shoes. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Julie, the thing that was really frustrating in some ways was that, you know, now in a post-George Floyd world, it feels like there are a lot of people who don't want to understand. Mm -hmm. They don't want to hear about, you know, uh, how we see history, you know, that there are multiple versions of history. They don't want to really acknowledge that. They don't want to hear from large segments of the country, which is how I am understanding voter suppression, is that they really just don't want to hear from those people about the direction that they feel they want to see the country go in. So there's there's this kind of uh, a willful putting your you know hands over your ears and eyes. We don't want to hear it. You ever feel that way? I feel that way all the time. I do too, a lot. And it's it's unbelievable. I from a person who sits in the town government mm -hmm. had I think I was talking with my daughter and I said, well, I work with so many different people. I can't always just choose to say what exactly goes through my head. <laughs> she said, no, you, you do and you need to. Mm. And I said, I don't want to be offensive. And she said, you need to. Wow. You think and she's I, right? 
and I know she's right. Yeah. I need to say what I'm there to say. I need to, otherwise I know I will not be healthy. Mm-hmm. I need to find, and I need to be given that space mm-hmm. at that table mm-hmm. to say what I know, and I need to hold that space for my people. Mm. And that's what I'm doing when I say e- it. Even if you run the risk of offending. Absolutely. I agree. You know what? Then, you know, they need to understand where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Because, you know what? My people were poor. Mm-hmm. My people might not have had the same shoes on that somebody else did. They might have not been wearing any shoes. Mm-hmm. But you know what? That was okay with us. And we didn't need someone else to come in and change who we were. Mm. We need to hold it down. And this is what I know my ancestors would applaud me for. Mm-hmm. I want my ways back. I want my language back. I want to celebrate the way that we do. I want to be able to support my people here mm-hmm. in our homeland mm-hmm. economically in all other ways of st- sustainability mm-hmm. so how do i do that and first i need to find my voice and i need to stand where i am mm-hmm. and those that want to stand with me will understand what i am saying uh, because i think that any minority has the right to say what they need mm-hmm. And sometimes you're going to be understood and sometimes you're not. Mm. But that is okay, especially if it brings you health. Mm. And the health of many people is better than the health of few. We need to find the balance within all communities. Mm. And that is what's going to help this nation and heal us. Well said, Julie. That's a beautiful sentiment. My understanding, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, before Europeans arrived on Noapi, mm-hmm. which is the name of the island, yep. there was really no such thing as land ownership, that the land was communal. And when Europeans arrived, they brought with them this idea of land ownership, which they really enforced upon the local Wampanoag people. Yes. And then because of that, land ownership, now that they never wanted and never needed, they were now forced to pay taxes to a local government based on an idea that they really wanted nothing to do with. And then that really persisted for quite a long time, really still to today. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So- we had no concept of this form of governance. Mm-hmm. This was just our land. This was just our community. Yeah. This was land that gave us health and provided for us. And when we were told that our families would own this much mm-hmm. and that we didn't own over there or over there, what did that, what happened? was that we couldn't go. We would migrate to the ocean in the summertime Mm -hmm. for harvests. Mm -hmm. We would go inland for wintertime for the shelter. You used the whole island. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So over time, what happened was people lost their land due to one thing or another, 
and had to remove themselves. Generations of our people now live all over the world, mm -hmm. um, mostly on the East Coast. And we do have a number of people living in the old fishing industry areas like North Dartmouth, New Bedford, uh, Boston, and other port areas. Uh, but these people had to move because of economics. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing that today, I believe, yeah. uh, with our drive for a gaming facility on hmm. our Quina um, lands, which is unfortunate because this is the motherland and our tribal council which is our government, they, they do the business for the tribal people. Mm -hmm. These, uh, the, the tribal council members are predominantly from other places, not, not from the year round islands. residents right. of Martha's Vineyard mm -hmm. or Aquina, which is relatively new. Uh, but these are people that are have been driven out for economics. And they have, their families have always been hurt economically. Mm -hmm. So what makes sense is to drive toward future economics using big industry, mm -hmm. such as a gaming facility. That doesn't work for us here. Still in Aquina, mm -hmm. uh, the majority, pretty much 99%, if not 100%, coming from Aquina does not want a gaming facility on what we consider our motherland, right. our homeland. Right. So it's very difficult. And we do have an understanding that the majority of our tribe has had to move off of these lands. Mm -hmm. Some of us have had the opportunity and maybe it, you know, it, to struggle to stay here and survive because we are holding out. Mm -hmm. We are willing to um, battle every day to stay here and do something that we know has been done generationally yeah. for our people which is so important to us. It is, Julie, and it becomes, it seems increasingly difficult, you know, with, Absolutely. As, as the price of land in Aquina goes up and it becomes more and more desirable, more people want to be here. Most of the people that can afford to buy homes here are buying secondary homes, so they're not people that are really living and upholding the community and the values becoming part of the community. They're really developing a completely new and different community than what's been there. Right. It's still a huge struggle. Um, I set up my business mm -hmm. organically. Once again, I was experienced in using an outdoor fire. Mm -hmm. And my whole world, so funny, seemed to get better if I was outside and listening to this place. Wow. Yeah. So, so tell us briefly, you have a you have Orange Peel Bakery? Yes, the Orange Peel Bakery is centered around a 
huge wood-fired oven, which is outside. How long has the bakery been there? 17 years this year. Wow. So it's really, it's just amazing because my workspace is 20 by 16. Uh-huh. Uh, and then what we can do with that space and our oven is is very amazing. The oven is a community oven. Mm-hmm. Um I did import it from France. I fell in love with the build of this oven. It was from France, and it was from some of the most thermodynamic clay in the world, and it came to me in three 5,000-pound boxes, and guess what? Then I had to build it. (laughs) (laughs) Had you ever done anything like that before? I had never done anything like it. Did you have help? Yes, I hired the guy that... Uh, owned the company that I got it from. Mm-hmm. And myself and one college student built the inside. Mm-hmm. And then for the outside, a local uh, stone mason, Kenny Lane, fell in love with this project. Mm. And he said to me, come over to my quarry and take all the stone that you need and let's go to work. Mm-hmm. He fell in love with this project. He was trying to find the love of his stonework uh, once again. And he was an apprentice for Lou French mm-hmm. for a very long time. And Ken helped me build the outside with three tenders Wow! over the course of 10 months. And then I had to learn how to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, took me about five years to actually learn how exactly to know what I was doing. Now, were you baking things and and having people eat those things in I those first few years? I was always baking fastidiously mm-hmm. through many seasons mm-hmm. um, and learning every day what what someone would really have to do to to use this wood fired oven. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was. Uh, one of the largest outdoor wood-fired ovens on the East Coast. Wow. I didn't know that. Hmm. And I would bake with it every day. We were baking everything, everything that I could do on a normal fire or in an indoor oven, mm-hmm. I could use this community oven for. Mm-hmm. So in order for it to really become a community oven, I felt like I needed to bring in the community around me. Mm-hmm. And my question was, who is my community? Who? And I invited the entire island. Did you? Because did the entire island show up? They did. <laughs> That's they a did. lot of people. <laughs> and, you know, we had the pizza night. This mm-hmm. was the creation. So at the time, I turned away no one. $10, all you could eat. Bring something to share, mm-hmm. just like you would with one of our community dinners. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still one of the people, most popular nights absolutely. up island. I mean, they your were, biggest problem was where to park these right. days, right? Yeah. yeah. So people were not understanding this. They'd come and they'd go, what's going on? Is this a private party? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. Just come and bring something to share and, you know, put this donation well we were you know donation at that point now it's a little changed because of the wear on the property has changed mm-hmm. uh, so the upkeep of the property actually has to 
require real money. So I have to put a different cost on it. But back in the day, this is where we started. So Julie, you're getting into uh, something I wanted to ask you about related to you and, and food. And we had Jessica Harris on our last season, and she talked about the importance of food and the history of food and the transmitting of culture, the, the, the role that food plays in that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Jessica's a, she's one of my mentors. She's a heavy hitter. She's like one of my favorite people on the planet. Mm-hmm. And we really, we've had this discussion you know, for me to put what my harvest for the day is, and that might be mushrooms, it might be little necks, mm-hmm. it might be maple leaves, mm. uh, you know, a sassafras tea, to introduce people to what is in our field, why. Why are we doing this? Well, my belief is that when you ingest what is growing in your environment, it's Hmm. going to make you that much stronger. Hmm. And also the reason why I was doing that, and I called the community of Martha's Vineyard to come, was to highlight that I didn't need more than that oven and what I was doing to be here, but I wanted them to recognize how absolutely beautiful it was and how much they were enjoying being together. This was, we were serving 160 people Mm -hmm. some evenings, but there was no wait for food. Mm -hmm. There were people that young and old gathered. Some people didn't know what was going on. So I'd ask the people that came, the people that were in the community, in the community of my business, Mm -hmm. in the community right there gathering for what, to introduce themselves to those who were there that evening who didn't know what was going on. And what did they bring? Did they bring something food-wise to the table? Mm -hmm. Did they have a guitar that they were going to share, music. Do were they going to bring poetry? Mm-hmm. Yes. Were they going to dance, share? How were we going to celebrate coming together and eating together? Because we were making upwards of 200 pizzas mm-hmm. and they were all coming out potluck. Mm. And people would say, oh, that looks good or that looks good, I'll take those. And they'll stand on these lines and the children weren't, they didn't, they weren't hungry. So they weren't whining. They were loving things. Mm -hmm. The children, (laughs) people were like, wait, my children is, they're eating things with vegetables on them. Uh They're having fun. There was no, no one that was dissatisfied. Hmm. People would bring beer, wine, whatever. And they would share it with the person maybe mm-hmm. at the next table and over. And all, all of that really came out of your oven, all yeah. of it. We were breaking down the lines that we're used to. When we go out to dinner, mm-hmm. we don't go over to the table that's next to us and offer them. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't. And we don't say hello. 
We don't say hello to our neighbors. I found myself introducing people from different towns in Massachusetts. Wow. Like, oh, you're from Concord, Mass. Let me introduce you to this person. Mm. And do you if, like do you like being in that role, connecting people like that? It wasn't a thought that I should do that. It just happened. It was everything was so organic. Mm-hmm. But why not? You know, it was going to make he was going to level the playing field. Uh, interesting. So people that I had no idea were, yeah, I didn't know whether they were wealthy, mm-hmm. whether they were poor. Mm-hmm. I invited them to stay. And at the end of the night, it didn't matter. Mm. I have had people from classical musicians come and play and share who they are at this very small venue, but it felt like it was enormous. Mm-hmm. We've had rock bands, discos, we've <laughs> we do poetry, hopefully we'll do some other crazy things, but it's wonderful because we're there to participate and share what we know is great, and that is this wonderful outdoor space. Mm-hmm. And eating food provided by the islands. Yeah. Yeah. So that allowed me to, uh, well, when I came here, I was pretty sick. Mm -hmm. It it allowed me to heal. Mm -hmm. It allowed my family, my children, to understand where and who they are in the community of people that we met from around, not just the island, but this nation, Mm -hmm. and give us a place in it. And when we speak about who we are, we know who we are, finally. Because I think at some point, it was quite absent. It was absent from my life as a young person who was growing up in a native community that was not recognized Mm -hmm. in a strong way. And when I was introducing myself to people, to tour groups, to many, many people that have come to this island, I was saying, this is our land. And I was naming it, and I was holding it, and I was strong in my conviction about this place. Mm-hmm. And there was something absolutely healing in it. Mm-hmm. Not, but I think that I was called back to become a speaker for my community. You're a tremendous advocate for the island. When you really are. My people have not been able to find their voice Mm -hmm. or find the words on pages, whatever it might be. It's to announce that we are here. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I learned when I was searching in the Navajo Hopi land. Hmm. We are here. And the call for all of the native tribes that I went to was at the time we are here. 
I want to thank you, Julie, for talking with us today and inspiring us because, yes, we are still here. And thank you, listeners, for joining us again for another episode of Shed. Shed has been brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. It is produced by Eric Adams, Bill Evel, Chris Fisher, Amy Schumer, and Jack Ebby, with audio production by Anthony Esposito and Dana Edelman. <laughs>